Welcome to the AI Ireland podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Brian McNamee, UCD School of Computer Science, Niall Campion, co-founder of Frey, and Kelvin Keane, Western Europe and Partner Manager at Microsoft for Startups Europe. In the final part of our two-part series for Frey, we'll be going under the hood of the technical innovations of Frey, how Frey are using technology as an enabler for the customer's success, and a partnership with academia and industry to provide innovative services to the customers. In the previous podcast with Pat O'Connor, MD and co-founder of Frey, and Bibas Bacharia, business group leader of Reserve in Ireland, we discussed how Frey got started, the limitations with traditional training, and the importance of providing authentic and memorable experiences for employees to recall training in times of need. Pat highlighted the importance of security and trust when choosing to use the Microsoft Reserve platform, which is enabled for a smoother sales process, but also being a platform for growth. If you haven't listened to that podcast, I'd recommend you check it out. Welcome, Brian, Nalk, and Kelvin. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Mark. Great to be here. Thanks, you. Mark. Great to have you on the show. Niall, can you tell me a little bit about how you got working with Dr. Brian McNamee and the, and the collaboration with his team at UCD? Yeah, like it's, it's I guess, a reasonably typically Irish story insofar as we were introduced by a mutual acquaintance. Um, so Pat, my co-founder, was in the Irish Army and Brian's brother was in the Army. So um, I think they were talking about us looking to do some AI work. Um, so when we set up we call the company Vray because we liked the VR part of the word Vray, which in French means true. So it was quite aligned to what we were doing. We kind of knew at some point in the future we might be doing some AI stuff, but didn't really have a, any sort of insight on what that was going to be. Um, so we kind of thought, well, how do we start looking at AI? And Pat and Brian's brother were having a conversation. He said, my brother is in this AI business. Would you like to have a, a chat to him? So we met up out in UCD and Brian basically schooled us on what AI actually is. Um, I think it kind of went from there then. Brian, for the listeners that don't know about your background and experience working with startups, can you give us a run through of some of the ways in which startups can gain access to innovative research and the benefits of, of this approach? Yeah, thanks, Mark. So I work in the School of Computer Science in UCD, and I guess through that have a, a number of different jobs, uh, ranging from the, the work we do on our, our taught courses through I'm a direct, uh, the director of a, an SFI Center for Research Training and Machine Learning and then associated with some of the big uh, research centers like the Insight Center as well. Um, and it's kind of interesting, I guess, the interactions that we'd have with companies range from those first conversations that Niall mentioned over coffee about, you know, companies looking at AI and thinking, well, what might we do with that all the way through to big multi-year research projects that we might do with companies. Um, and I think those different aspects of what we do within computer science and UCD give lots of opportunities for that. So straight from just some advice on what people are doing to things like student placements to those big, uh, much bigger research engagements. Thanks for that, Brian. And in the previous podcast episode, Pat provided an overview of some of the customers that Fry are working with. There was one in particular that sounded very interesting within the Air Force, helping to train rookie fighter pilots. Tell us now about how Fry has assisted in this area. Yeah, so I guess our, our biggest project at the moment is with the RAF for the Royal Air Force in the UK. Um, and we were commissioned to investigate something called airmanship. So airmanship is defined as the non-technical skills required to operate an aircraft. And so what we're building, and Brian is really helping us in this, is a tool that will allow us to quantify or objectively quantify this airmanship um, characteristic in pilots. 
So like the way I def- kind of define it outside of flying terminology is it, it's analogous to like driving a car and it's the skills around checking your mirrors and making sure you're in the right position in the road and making sure you don't crash into other cars. Um, and so that's sort of what airmanship is. And at the moment, the way it's assessed is basically an instructor sitting beside the pilot in the cockpit of the aircraft, um, making sure their head is pointing in the right direction, looking at the right things out the window, looking at the right dials, and are their actions based on looking at the right dials? Um, so like if their speed is going down, are they adjusting the pitch of the aircraft or are they increasing the throttle? And so it's this idea of like the inputs that the pilot is receiving matching to the outputs that they're providing. Um, and so which may be going into a little bit too much detail on, on, on that project initially, but like the idea is ultimately to codify or quantify something that's unquantifiable. The way we're doing that is um, in VR, we've, we've tapped into an existing flight simulator um, and we've plugged our data capture pipeline into it. And so we're capturing up to, it's, it's up to, I think, 40 million data points per sort of one hour experience, which is obviously far too much for a human to comprehend. And so that's obviously where Brian came into the project is. So we have all this data. In fact, I would say Brian's involvement goes much further, much earlier than that. It's like, how do we capture this data in a structured way so that when um, an AI expert looks at it, they're able to provide an assessment that says, okay, well, maybe these are the values that are influencing good or bad behavior. So for any Top Gun fans listening in, they will be, they'll, they'll be thinking, thinking heavily into this. And I, before I was, we were due to speak about that, I was thinking about how would Maverick become even better if he was to utilize uh, some, some of these tools th- that he had. Brian, so where do you start when you've got access to over 40 million data points? Because, you know, as, as Niall mentioned, for your average person, you can't even think about something like that. Yeah, so that's really interesting, and it's I, I think the domain that that I work in with uh, VR scenarios gives rise to this really rich but really really big data stream uh, coming in. So that's one of the big challenges. I think the first step is to figure out before we disappear too much into the data, what is it that people are trying to measure. So we did a lot of sort of interesting sessions with myself, people from Vi, people who are pilots and instructors to understand, well, what is it that's going on here? What might be interesting? And then we kind of went through an iterative process of recognizing from them what might be interesting, then going back to the data to say, well, you know, do we measure that? Is that in here? Are there some signals that we might be able to use? And sort of iterating through that a, a number of times to try and nail down the things that were interesting to them and then the things that we might be able to measure within the data. Um, then the big thing is to try and come back up from that massive number of data points to a, a much smaller number of sort of really insightful data points. So how do we collapse all that data? Because it's it's really rich. It's like every, I, I can't remember, it's 30 or 60 times a second, we, we get sort of a, a picture of here's everything that's happening right now. So then to aggregate that back up into much richer pieces of data. Because the temptation would be to to quickly work on the wrong problem, and that doesn't isn't that impactful. So you being so stick to the core of that problem definition, keeping that as your north star, and making sure that it's impactful. Because I can imagine the rabbit holes that you could possibly fall down with. Wouldn't it be cool snare? And suddenly you you no one no one's winning in that one. So Brian, how important is this not to reinvent the wheel and utilize some of the algorithms, rich models, tools, and services available on the cloud on demand that are already available to you? I think that goes to exactly the, the point that you made before is that 
what you want to be able to do is iterate through things as quickly as you can so that you can take an idea from the domain experts, see, right, how can we find this in the data? How can we build a model um, or, or build a, some piece of analysis to, to try and pull that out of the data and then bring it back to those people to say, here, what do you think? And that's where not doing the job of reinventing the wheel for everything uh, becomes really, really useful. So we, particularly as academics, have a temptation to say, well, every problem uh, looks like a problem that I can apply this latest, shiniest, newest thing that I've done or that I've seen to. And we got to kind of sit on our hands a little bit sometimes and say, well, don't do that. Let's use nice standard stuff to figure out where the, the sort of easy wins in this data are, where the easy insights that we can pull out, put in front of people, and then figure out where's the, where are the places where it is really worth digging deep into the weeds to, to apply those newest, shiniest things. So I think, like you said, exactly having sort of everyone involved in data science and data analytics or AI projects like this is really important to make sure that we don't just have the data view or the, the or any other silo view and using existing things makes it much easier to do that. And then following on for that, how important is it for you to ensure that the services that you're using on the cloud are secure and compliant? Yeah, I think good cloud services are a good solution for us. That's that's a real headache for us as, as collaborators with people because often all of the time, I guess we're collaborating with people, it's never our own data. Um, it's a, there's always data sharing involved in that because we're coming out to collaborate with companies like Rye so one of the, I guess, reasons why we would like clouds or do choose to use cloud solutions for a lot of things is a lot of those sort of headaches go away from us. If we know that we're using a, a really reliable, really secure platform, then we, we don't have to worry about that quite so much, uh, which really helps and we can dig into solving the problem. So um, I think it's crucial that we put those things in place and use those kind of platforms. So you're able to access those models and off-the-shelf services and then you can you can leverage them as well, which is very, very important. Niall, from an illustration point of view, leveraging the data from the fighter pilots to analyze the fast data sets, how do you go presenting those insights to the rookies? Yeah, so I, I think presenting the data is probably one of the big challenges we set ourselves as a company, because again, like it's that 40 million data points, like down to one basically is where I'd like to be. So like, it's all about having it actionable. Because again, as Brian said, it's it's great to go and solve a problem, but like if that problem or the answer isn't actionable, then like what's the point? So like that probably ties back to your question um, around how how it how it applies to rookies and and so in, in the way we've structured this project, and again a lot of the credit in this goes to Brian is like we're we're measuring what trainee pilots do when they fly this scenario, what experienced pilots do when they fly the scenario, and what the sort of expected outcome is of sort of the average pilot or whatever, and so. Again, we're only working through the project, but the the uh, under or anticipation will be that there will be a difference between what the rookie pilots do and the experienced pilots do, and the idea then will be like from a product vision perspective, I guess, is that we can start to train the rookie pilots to perform like the experienced pilots. We can analyze what they're doing well and maybe what they're not doing so well, and just train them on the things that they're not doing well. So if they're really good at two two of the three components, then like why why do we need to tr spend a lot of time training them on those? Let's just train them on the one thing that they're not good at to get them up to what the experienced pilots are doing. Yeah, because it's kind of counterintuitive. People that, that do things really well don't necessarily always know that's what they do. 
they yep. may they may take it for granted as well. That's just common sense, or that's that's how I approach it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about VR, AR, and the application of that for Frey and its future and that kind of immersive experience? Yeah, I mean that's basically what we do as a company, and and like VR and AR combined with data basically is is what we what we foresee the future of training being. So, like the, the great thing about working with sort of air and particularly like air in the defense context is it's quite a mature industry in terms of simulation training in general. So like for them using VR in that space, it's just an evolution of existing technology. So they're used to training in big simulators. This instead is like a small simulator in a box with a headset. I guess where we really see this growing in the future is around non-traditional industries. So industries that wouldn't traditionally have used simulation training. So like our, our other big project at the moment is in the offshore wind industry. And so that's an industry that has no real legacy of simulation training. I mean, it's a young industry, there's no real legacy of a lot of things, but like they have no sort of current use cases of simulation training. And so what we're doing is trying to bring technologies from these traditional simulation industries across to non-traditional industries using VR. Because what the real advantage that VR has is that it, it makes it a much more affordable solution. So instead of having to build a big physical simulator, you're just putting them in a VR headset and the whole thing is virtual. Um, so that's kind of where we see it going. Yes. Thank you for that. Tell us about your collaboration you've had with a team at Microsoft for startups. Yeah, so like uh, we were adopted onto Microsoft for Startups program, um, I think just before Christmas. And it, like it's been amazing um, as an experience. Like so we, we decided we were with a different cloud provider and we decided probably pretty soon after we got this RF job actually to, to move to Azure because that would that would seem to be where a lot of our clients were. And so, you know, it's interesting to ask back to your questions to Brian earlier around safety and security and, and that sort of stuff. Like that's obviously a key thing for us. Um, and it's a key thing for our customers too. And so we decided to make this move and we kind of looked into like, well, how do we go about doing that? And through the sort of various Microsoft networks, we were introduced to the Microsoft for Startups program. And then also we were accepted onto the Fast Track to ISV program. And they've been really beneficial in terms of like, you know, getting our team up to speed on the, the nuances of the Microsoft system. So like, while we have cloud people and data engineers, they kind of weren't very familiar with how the specific tools work in the Microsoft environment. And just having like, like I described them as phone of friends, you can just pick up the phone and say, well, like, here's what we're kind of trying to do. And they'll say, well, look at this product and this product combined with this product. And that solves the problem straight away for you. So like, it's really like, it's a time saver, huge time saver for us. Um, like the other thing we're doing with the Fast Track to ISV program is um, our lead data engineer is doing weekly calls with the Microsoft team. And again, they're giving a bit of mentoring on like, here's how you apply your current knowledge because he's really experienced, but like he's not that experienced on, on Azure. So here's how you apply your current knowledge to work with our system. And again, that's a huge time saver. Just, you know, it's, it's exponential in terms of how it lets us grow. And it's a really good point because as Brian said, sometimes in academia, there's a natural inclination to try out something that doesn't necessarily be as impactful on the solution you're trying to work or the problem you're trying to work, the solution you're going to have. So that time saver that can help you stick to what you're focused on or your North Star to add value to your customers can can really make a significant uh, change for the good for your business, but also your, your other customers. Kelvin, just for people that don't know much about the program and would like to, I suppose, have a bit of an overview about the, the Sardis program, could you share us a little bit more what's involved or how people could actually get access to it? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Um, and I guess, you know, 
Niall has kind of hit it there in a nutshell. Like really what we're hoping to do as Microsoft startups is scale B2B startups on our technical expert, uh, on our technical resource, using our commercial resource as well to ultimately have a long-term relationship with Microsoft going forward. Really how we do that is create an ecosystem that helps them scale and grow by giving them access to our, you know, Microsoft subsidiaries, our technical resources, our partners, whether they're internal partners or external partners like VCs, system integrators, technical partners, commercial partners, and then ultimately looking um, at, uh, at our customers down the track. And really it's simplifying that access into the Microsoft network and, you know, Microsoft is a very large company, as we all know, and you know what we're hoping to do is really act as that connective tissue between startups and scale-ups and that network. I guess you know we're looking for companies that are building cloud-based solutions. Obviously, there's up to $120,000 of Azure credits, range of business tools involved in uh, in our program, as well as the the fantastic technical support, as Niles already uh, already mentioned. Um, but then we're also looking at, you know, high potential companies as well, B2B companies that we can really push towards our own customers as well. I guess, you know, getting involved in the Microsoft for Startups program, you know, we really uh, we recruit either internally. So through uh, through Microsoft people um, ourselves or through our partners. So we have a range of fantastic partners, um, you know, across Ireland, which uh, you know, whether it's a VC or the likes of Enterprise Ireland, um, they all have referral codes. But I think probably the easiest, uh, the easiest way that startups can get involved in the Microsoft Startups program in this format is connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Kelvin Keen, Microsoft for Startups. Happy to have a conversation with you and happy to point you in the right direction. Kelvin, thank you for that. And now, you know, we've really good example of Frey utilizing academia and industry partners to allow Frey to fast track their ability to provide innovative services to customers that may not have been possible if Frey had gone on this journey themselves. What advice would you share to startups who are who are about to take the first step but a little bit hesitant? In, in specifically in relation to dealing with Microsoft or or in, in general? Well, I think I think in general, in terms of, you know, coming back to the point of reinventing the wheel, sometimes you want to try to do so much yourself rather than actually, you know, utilizing the ecosystem. And we see the success that can come from, you know, collaboration. Yeah, for sure. And like, that's probably where I will go in general and also specifically. So, like for me in general, the best thing I ever did was was work with a co-founder. So like, you know, having someone you can trust who's at the same level, who you can sort of have frank and honest conversations with, like that's a key thing for me. Um, and then, yeah, the second thing is maybe around the technology piece, which is like the means of production is pretty affordable at the moment for most things. So like, you know, to get into the VR ecosystem, like there are programs like this Microsoft program, like there are, there are sort of game engines that you can build stuff on pretty quickly. Um, and so like, uh, I guess my, my general advice is like, <laughs> just go and, and do it. Um, and so like talk to the likes of Kelvin and talk to the likes of Enterprise Ireland. Like there are so many supports that are available for companies to, to start going. Now Campion, Brian, back to me and Kelvin Keane, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, really, Mark.